Hi, it's Tom Panneries, and I want to come on at the top of the show here to say that this is one of a series of episodes that will cover the events of September 11th, 2001, along with the pop culture about it. Though these events are now 20 years in the past, they are still traumatizing to many, and I wanted to give you a heads up that listener discretion is advised. If you choose to listen and have thoughts, comments, or points you'd like to make, I would love to hear your feedback. Send an email to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. Comment on the Facebook post at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit, or find me on Twitter at popaff, that's P-O-P-A-F-F. After the Disaster by Abigail Deutsch New York City, 2001 One night, not long after the disaster, as our train was passing Astor, the car door opened with a shutter, and a girl came flying down the aisle, hair that looked to be all feathers and a half-moon smile making open air of our small car. The crowd ignored her. They muttered, hey, excuse me, as they passed her when the train paused at Rector. The specter crowed, excuse me, swiftly turned and ran back up the corridor and stopped for me. We dove under the river. She took my head between her fingers, squeezing till the birds began to stir. And then from out my eyes and ears, a flock came forth. I couldn't think or hear or breathe or see within that feather world, so I silently thanked her. Such things were common after the disaster. Abigail Deutsch's poem was published in the March 2015 issue of Poetry Magazine. Deutsch is an award-winning journalist, editor, and author who as a teenager attended Stuyvesant High School, the high school that if you listen to the previous episodes of this miniseries, is located about half a mile from the World Trade Center. Those of you who have not only been listening to this series but are also taking a deeper dive into the show notes will recognize her name as one of the student journalists for The Spectator, Stuyvesant's student newspaper. I offer up that piece of biographical information whenever I use this poem in my AP Lit class because while it's not absolutely necessary for my students to know it in order to analyze it, it provides a little more authenticity. Deutsch's poem is one of grief. She paints an almost surreal picture of an angelic or ghostly presence floating down the aisle of a subway car in order to get across a moment of spontaneous emotional release. The idea that in Lower Manhattan, such things were common, as she says in her last line, suggests a person who represents a city who may not have been able to really feel the grief from the trauma they experienced. Sure, There was a lot of emotion expressed in the days after 9-11, but how much of that public emotion was that of putting on a brave face or feeling sad for the victims and their families, as opposed to really exploring how everyone else was feeling? What were the witnesses and the people who were in close proximity to the disaster, but didn't suffer a literal feeling thinking? Did they think they had to be grateful for surviving and they repressed their emotions until one day those emotions came out? Or was this an event that one could not simply get over and move on from, no matter how hard one tried? 
This is the third episode in a six-episode series about 9-11 and pop culture brought to you by Pop Culture Affidavit, which is part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm Tom Panneries, and what I want to do over the course of these six episodes is examine the books, movies, music, comics, and other popular culture that directly address or are about the attacks of September 11th, 2001. Each episode is going to focus on a different medium, and I'm going to spend time reviewing them all as well as evaluating their effectiveness and capturing the moments and feelings of the day. We use our culture to both memorialize and interpret events, and with 20 years gone since that time, we look at whether or not those pieces accomplish what they set out to do. Now, I will tell you up front that I'm not going to be able to talk about every single piece of popular culture that is about 9-11, and I will mostly stick to what I've read, watched, or listened to, or what had any sort of effect on me. So there will be much that I don't talk about, and you're welcome to let me know what I might be missing. But keep in mind that even though I'm going for some talk about history and popular culture here, I'm also going to speak from a very personal place, and that means that some of my preferences and biases might be on display. I think I'll also take a moment to tell you that while I'll be getting into people's visions, interpretations, or fictionalizations of 9-11, I will not get into anything regarding conspiracy theories. Personally find them, 9-11 trutherism and everything else associated with it, to be morally repugnant. Last episode, I looked at comic books. For this episode, I'm turning my attention to a couple of pieces of literature, poetry, short stories, and novels that either directly address the 9-11 attacks or have 9-11 as part of their plot. And this episode has a companion piece on required reading with Tom and Stella. On our August episode, we discussed Jonathan Safran Foer's novel, Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, which is one of the most more notable books that centers around the attacks and the effects that people felt afterward. But I'll start my episode with poetry, which can be much less literal than fiction, even though some do try to describe the more indelible images of the day as a way of record-keeping that is more personal and more intimate. In her poem, I Saw You Walking, which is written in October 2001, Deborah Garrison describes seeing a man in Newark who obviously escaped death, and when she encounters him, first she gives him notes your day's passage first forced me away, tracing the crescent birth you'd give a drunk, a lurcher, nuzzling all corners with ill will in his stench. But then she goes on to describe a man whose suit has been pretty much shredded, a man who was lucky to get out of where he was alive. It's a moment that's been frozen for her in time, as is a moment that Adam Szczeski describes in Try to Praise the Mutilated World. He likens what he saw that day to memories of a walk he once took through an abandoned village where he noticed the beautiful weather at the time, which is what he calls a contest between beauty and disaster. And while it seems trivial to discuss the weather on September 11, 2001, there are definitely a number of people who would tell you that up and down the East Coast, it was a gorgeous day. Temperatures were somewhere in the low 70s. The humidity was low to non-existent, something that you don't expect for that time of year. Granted, it might be the result of, you know, coming on like 17 or 18 years living in Virginia. But I also always associate the week or two after Labor Day to be hot and sticky, just like August was, because the summer doesn't want to let go. On the other hand, others choose to write poetry that looked at the day as a whole and wonder about the why. It is a question that, of course, was asked afterward, and for many was answered officially by the phrase, they hate us for our freedoms. 
Others wondered if there was more to it than that. In a 2002 poem, Stephen Dunn uses the word grudges, asking yet who among us doesn't harbor a grudge or secret? A question that sounds like it's trivializing the terrorist attacks, but seeks to find some sort of understanding. And while I don't want to use empathy here, I think I kind of know what he's getting at. More blunt with his words when exploring the why of September 11th is Amiri Baraka, who wrote Somebody Blew Up America in 2002 and sought to put lie to the idea that the United States was innocent when that happened. Not in a conspiratorial way, mind you, but in a way that suggests that the attacks were consequences for generations of actions that oppressed people and stole territory, among other things. He begins with a statement, they say it's some terrorist, some barbaric Arab in Afghanistan, and then launches dozens of accusatory questions. Who owned them buildings? Who got the money? Who you think you funny? Who locked you up? Who owned the papers? Who owned the slave ship? Who run the army? Who the fake president? Who the ruler? Who the banker? Who, who, who? It's a poem I enjoy because of its contrariness to the sentiment we saw and heard throughout the months after the attacks. And while it may offend some, it raises questions that maybe some people were asking but were afraid to actually voice. After all, there were writers who did voice opinions and reactions critical of the United States in the fall of 2001 and found themselves facing harsh blowback. You'd even say they were canceled from those who felt that they were being anti-American. Susan Sontag is probably the most famous one who wrote a piece for The New Yorker where she said, let's by all means grieve together, but let's not be stupid together. A few shreds of historical awareness might help us understand what has happened and what may continue to happen. Our country is strong, we are told again and again. I, for one, don't find this entirely consoling. Who doubts that America is strong, but that's not all America has to be. Baraka's poem is doing the same thing as Sontag was doing here and also implying that we never learn these lessons. However, the poem is problematic as Baraka does lean into an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory that suggests that there were a number of Jewish people who worked in the World Trade Center who were told to stay home on that day. This, of course, is not true. And it does taint the poem, at least for me, because while I definitely think a more critical examination of the actions of our government throughout our history, as well as a critical examination of our culture is necessary, especially in times of national tragedy, I cannot abide anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. Neither, by the way, could New Jersey Governor Jim McGreevy. He, according to Wikipedia, tried to remove Baraka from the Poet Laureate of New Jersey post after the poem's publication, to which he had been appointed following uh, Gerald Stern in July 2002. McGreevy learned that there was no legal way to do so according to the law authorizing and defining the position. So, on October 17, 2002, legislation to abolish the post altogether was introduced in the state Senate and subsequently signed into law, becoming effective July 2, 2003. But all that aside, my favorite poems are those that are more about the dead and seek to mourn, comfort, or capture a moment or feeling. I read Abigail Deutsch's After the Disaster at the show's opening, and there are three others that I find powerful, two of which are by illuminary American writers. First, there is Names by Billy Collins, who has been Poet Laureate of the United States in the past and is really one of the more accessible poets, at least for people who aren't too into poetry. 
Names from 2005 is structured as a moment of profound thought on a rainy night that continued into the next day as he makes his way through an ordinary day and the names of those who died comes to his mind. Names he repeats as they pop up until he recites all of them, finishing with this stanza. Names etched on the head of a pin. One name spanning a bridge, another undergoing a tunnel. A blue name needled into the skin. Names of citizens, workers, mothers, and fathers. The bright-eyed daughter, the quick son. Alphabet of names in a green field. Names in the small tracks of birds. Names lifted from a hat or balanced on the tip of the tongue. Names wheeled into the dim warehouse of memory. So many names, there is barely enough room on the walls of the heart. In To the Dead of September 11th, Toni Morrison wishes to speak to those who have died, and what she does is strip away all that would make her speak in a way that is rehearsed, expected, and uses rhetoric instead of words. The image she uses in her poem are stark and honest, an effort to get to the heart of things instead of finding words to make someone feel good. The most powerful part of her poem to me is, To speak to you, the dead of September 11th, I must not claim false intimacy or summon an overheated heart glazed in just in time for a camera. I must be steady and I must be clear, knowing all the time that I have nothing to say, no word stronger than the steel that pressed into you itself, no scripture older or more elegant than the ancient atoms you have become. I really like that phrase, I must not claim false intimacy or summon an overheated heart glazed just in time for a camera. And finally, there is the poem Photograph from September 11th, a 2005 poem by Wysala Simborska, who is a Polish poet and a Nobel laureate. It's a poem written in reaction to the Falling Man photograph. It's a photograph I'll talk a little bit about later in the miniseries. Again, it's a simple piece and yet captures the significance or the weight of the moment. Here it is in its entirety. They jump from the burning floors, one, two, a few more, higher, lower. The photograph halted them in life and now keeps them above the earth toward the earth. Each is still complete with a particular face and blood well hidden. There's enough time for hair to come loose, for keys and coins to fall from pockets. They're still within the air's reach, within the compass of places that have just now opened. I can only do two things for them. Describe this flight and not add a last line. It's that last stanza that gets me. And I think that makes the poem powerful. Well, many of us who were watching the coverage of the events live or who read the coverage in the days following knew that people had jumped from the upper floors of the towers. And in the years after, there would be some outstanding writing and even a documentary done about those people. In those initial days, those cover those images faded from coverage, perhaps because seeing what was that was deemed all too real. Because when you think about it, we're able to process a building collapsing as horrific as it is. We can process memorials, missing posters, obituary pictures in the New York Times, but the actual moment of individual death, how do we process that? 
he doesn't, or at least he doesn't show it because of a sense of respect or honor, and maybe because perhaps he knows that whatever we can imagine would be worse than what we can see. When it comes to fiction, writers have more space to work with than poets and very often tell fuller stories, even if they are still individual stories. Gay Polisner does this in The Memory of Things, a young adult novel published in 2016, which tells the story of Kyle Donahue, a 16-year-old student at Stuyvesant High School who watches the first tower fall from a window in the school and then walks home across the Brooklyn Bridge, where he meets a mysterious girl dressed as an angel who is covered in ash. She doesn't seem to have anyone with her, so he brings her home, and then he finds out that she has no idea who she is, because she's suffering from some sort of trauma-induced temporary amnesia. Meanwhile, Kyle has no idea if his father, who works in the Joint Terrorism Task Force in downtown Manhattan, is alive, and he also lives with his uncle Matt, a paraplegic ex-EMT. Over the next several days, he and this girl become good friends, and he even falls for her. Without giving too much away, she does get her memory back, but more importantly, it's a sweet story about people caring for one another in the days following the September 11th attacks. Polisner is an outstanding writer, and I think I read this one in the span of like a day back when I was taking a young adult lit class in grad school. It's a much more engaging novel, at least to me, than The Emperor's Children, a novel by Claire Massoud that uses 9-11 as part of its ending as it takes place mostly in the spring and summer of 2001, focusing on a small group of college friends from Brown who are now approaching 30 and admittedly don't have much to show for it. It's one of those novels that's supposed to be a critical look at the rich and privileged in Manhattan, especially the intellectual types that my college writing professors would often fawn over. And if you go into the novel knowing that all of these characters are in their own way assholes, it's a little more enjoyable because you kind of want their lives to fall apart on them. In the very least, I wanted to watch it happen, which is the mark of a book that at least is engaging. And I bring the book up here exactly for that, which is that we have a pretty realistic, if not cynical, look at the way the self-important reacted to 9-11. One character falls into an incredibly deep depression. Another decides to fake his death. Another grieves selfishly because of the way his professional ambitions are effective. It's Fitzgerald-esque in a way, although whereas I consider The Great Gatsby to be required reading, The Emperor's Children is an acquired taste, especially since a significant portion of the beginning of the novel will have you wondering about why these characters are supposed to be interesting beyond their wealth and social status. But that's the tough thing about writing a novel about such an event, right? You don't know exactly where to put the event or what to do with it, and even if you do, it might not exactly land. The Emperor's Children has some interesting storylines, and Missa does get across the atmosphere of everything just changed and everything you were working on a week ago was irrelevant, especially in the one character whose magazine was supposed to launch on September 11th, and he reacts the way a spoiled child would if a death in the family superseded their birthday party. But Polisner, in the memory of things, works all of this in better and, and works the event itself in better. It's the catalyst for the events of the novel, not something that happens at the end. That novel, though, is also a teen romance novel, but it avoids being too cheesy or overwrought, and 
the not knowing that surrounds most of the characters, you know, the girl with the angel of the wings, the main character's parents, et cetera, and where they are. It's all intriguing because it mirrors what so many others were going through immediately after the attacks. But Polister's characters are people you care about. And like I said, everybody in the Emperor's Children was an asshole. I really didn't care about any of the characters. They act as if September 11th was something that happened to them. And they had to deal with it now as opposed to an actual life-changing tragedy. But again... What made it kind of worth reading was a look at people who acted like that because people did act like that in some regard too, right? The short stories I read were a little bit better, mainly because of the limitations of the form and the writers who were writing them. Short story writers don't have 300 pages to fill. They obviously don't have to introduce multiple storylines and characters as well. They can keep us within a few days or even a few moments. The latter is the case for the Joyce Carol Oates story, The Mutants, which centers around a woman who is leaving her nice Battery Park South apartment just as the first plane hits, so she heads inside and experiences the attack from her apartment. Now, before you say, didn't you just complain about an entire novel filled with annoying rich white people, I have to say that the strength here is that Oates is focused solely on the moments of the events, and it's a perspective that we didn't get from a lot of people who experienced the disaster, as well as one that is unique because the woman's apartment is located about a half a mile away from the Trade Center. So we get a very claustrophobic story that's filled with unknowing. Throughout most of it, the lights are out in the apartment in the middle of the morning, and lower Manhattan is under a thick cloud of dust and debris. We're in this woman's head as she tries to keep herself together and make some sort of decision as to what she needs to do. Eventually, she does decide to say put, and the last image of, is of her lighting a candle in her window and looking out to see several others doing the same thing. Oates wrote one of my all-time favorite short stories, Where Are You Going, Where Have You Been?, which takes a surreal turn towards its ending that makes you feel as if you've been cornered and something bad is about to happen to you. In the 35 years between that story and this one, she hadn't lost her touch. She does a great job of capturing the feeling of a massive amount of events happening in the span of a short time period, and yet it feeling like an eternity Remember, from the first plane hitting to the last tower collapsing, the time was roughly an hour and a half or so. Oates makes the mutants feel so visceral that you'd think it took place over the span of the entire day, and you feel the woman's panic and claustrophobia with her. The moment of the attacks is captured inside an office building in a brief creepy moment in Stephen King's story, The Things They Left Behind. This is a short story that was published in his 2008 short story collection just after sunset and centers around Scott Staley, an employee of Light and Bell Insurance, whose office is in one of the Twin Towers. He is only one of two people to survive from his entire company. And now it's late summer of 2002, and things that once belonged to his former co-workers are showing up in his apartment. He tries to throw them away, but they keep returning. Moreover, he can hear them whispering to one another. He locks them in a storage closet and he forgets them until he gets the idea to share what's been happening to him. 
He rings up a neighbor, Paula Robeson, whom he barely knows, asks her to lunch, and at that lunch reveals what's been going on. She thinks that he just has survivor's guilt because if he hadn't listened to a little voice in his head that told him to play hooky from work that day, he would have died. But she does decide to humor him and accepts one of the objects. The next day, she shows up at his apartment with the object and demands he take it back because the night after he gave it to her, she had a vivid nightmare. She then rattles off details about the life of the object's former owner and goes into a graphic description of what exactly he was doing when the office was on fire and he was about to die. Scott takes the object back and accepts that Paula never wants to see him again. He then realizes what he needs to do is not simply give the objects away, but return them to the families of their former owners. Now, this is a short story you really should read. I will say it does have some of King's more annoying storytelling quirks, such as this whole bit about the main character remembering when he almost got caught masturbating as a teenager, something that I kind of understand why it's there, but got annoyed because otherwise this would have been an outstanding story to teach high school students. I mean, it's there as a storytelling device because it delays us to getting to the point because Scott, our narrator, is completely avoiding the truth about everything. And at one point, I mean, he even invokes his mother's old ignore it and it'll go away attitude. But there are also conversations in here where King's descriptive style lends itself very well to an engaging story. He recalls a conversation with another survivor from his office where the guy told him about the way one of his co-workers jumped from the tower and it sounds like she somehow thought she would be okay. And I know that sounds utterly insane, but when I read it and thought about it, it made sense. That portion and then Paula describing her dream made my heart skip. King, like Oates, puts us back in that moment of raw panic and raw fear. It's not something that we want to necessarily always re-explore, but it's necessary for the story. Moreover, it's done deftly and with respect, avoiding one of the risks that anyone runs with fiction, which is being exploitative, especially of a tragedy. There's a sense of respect here, a full understanding of the gravity of the events. And I'm glad that King didn't turn this into some sort of stupid hookup between neighbors story, and that Scott realized his mission was to reunite the objects with the people's families. I can imagine that the title of this story is purposeful and that King wants us to be reminded of Tim O'Brien's story, The Things They Carried, which centers around a platoon in the Vietnam War, especially how each person in that platoon died. In both stories, we wind up with a sort of symbolism for each of the objects. We're also asked to determine their meaning, or at least see the moment where those objects become more than just stuff, which is something we do quite often in our culture. And I can imagine that if you're the wife or other family member of someone who died so unexpectedly, having something of them that is left behind can be one of the most important ways that you cope with your loss. That was not a comprehensive look at our literature or about or connected to 9-11. But like I've said, I wanted to pick and choose what jumped out at me or what I've had the time to read. Remember that in episode 57 of Required Reading with Tom and Stella, we are taking a look at Jonathan Safran Foer's novel, Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close. And that episode should be out right as you're listening to this. So head over there and listen. And then come back for the next part while I'll be looking at film and television. Until then, I wanted to let you know that I am setting aside a portion of episode 6 to answer any feedback I get on this series. 
So please drop me a line at popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com or get in touch with me on Twitter and Facebook. Not only would I like to hear your feedback, but I'd like to hear your stories, either what you remember about that day or thoughts you have 20 years later. And as always, thanks for listening and take care. This has been 9-11 in Popular Culture, which is presented by Pop Culture Affidavit and the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. The producer and narrator is Tom Paneris. Background music is by Sanji, MD Sabir Khan, Royalty Free Music, and Dick DeRitter, all of which are used via the Creator of Commons license. Other clips used in this series are done so under fair use. Show notes are available at popcultureaffidavit.com. Emails can be sent to me at popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. Follow me on Facebook and Instagram at popcultureaffidavit. And on Twitter at popaff. That's P-O-P-A-F-F. Thank you very much for listening.